Hello, everyone, and welcome to SA Today. My name is Michelle Botcher. I'm an assistant professor and the Student Affairs Program Coordinator in the College of Education at Clemson University. I'm also your host for SA Today, which is part of the SACSA podcast series. While this podcast is focused on current issues, events, and trends, it's also important that we get to know a little bit about our guests as we engage in our work and learning together. Since we are all more than just our jobs, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation and get to know our guest today, Dr. Sarah Jones from the University of West Georgia. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work as a faculty member at UWG? Sure. And hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I am in my second year at the University of West Georgia in this role as assistant professor. Uh, before that, I've been lurking around the College of Education for uh, and the university for about 10 years. During that time, uh, I worked as an instructor in the College of Ed, working with supervising uh, pre-service teachers. Then I worked in the Office of First Year Experience. And during that time, I got a master's degree from the program that I'm currently teaching in. Um, I've also done some practicum work in the Counseling Center here on campus. Uh, I'm thrilled to be faculty in this program. Um, I was searching for positions and was really surprised when this one came up uh, and almost didn't apply because it seemed too perfect. Um, I have so lucky to work with amazing colleagues, especially thankful for support from Dina Neese and the vision of Matt Varga and working with the students that, that come to the University of West Georgia. I love our undergraduate population, and I'm really starting to love our graduate population here in the College of Education. Um, what are some things that you're currently reading, watching, or listening to? And they can be work-related, but they can also be just things maybe you're doing for fun. Sure. I'm kind of in that great point of the semester where I read everything I need to prep for class. Um, and, of course, I'm always reading literature um, close to my topic. But uh, I'm currently reading um, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which is a young adult novel, and which is really great. And I'm reading this other book uh, by Bettina Love, who's a theorist, a reading theorist, a literacy theorist at, from the University of Georgia. And she's written a book called we want to do more than survive, abolitionist teaching in the pursuit of educational freedom. Um, the last two times I went to the movies, I saw Frozen 2. I cannot recommend it enough. It's incredible. Um, and and when I'm not watching things with the kids, uh, my wife and I are, are watching The Crown. And then I love to get in a good episode of Good Girls. I'm always listening to Brandy Carlisle, and I'm currently obsessed with this album um, by Yola, who's a kind of a kind of Float the genre of uh, of folk rock and country, and she has this album called Walk Through Fire. So, great. And do you have a favorite quote that you'd be willing to share? I do. Um, I have one here from from Bell Hooks, teaching to transgress education as practice of freedom, and she says, "As a classroom community, our capacity to generate excitement." is deeply affected by our interest in one another and hearing one another's voices and in recognizing one another's presence. And, um, it, to me, really speaks to this idea of, of our classroom, and whether that's in the actual classroom or out in the world as a community and how we have to be with each other and hear each other in order to, to, to make the most meaning. That's a great quote to start this semester. Do you share it with your students? I do. Uh, I try to um, have one every week on my agenda. It's something I just started this year. That's great. Um, all right. So one other question. 
And this one is a would you rather. Okay. Okay. So okay. would you rather teach online only for the rest of your career or teach only face to face, but not be allowed to use any technology in the classroom? <sighs> oh, that's a tough question. And I love teaching both, but I would prefer to teach face to face without technology. Um, you know, my background is well teaching. And I love the classroom activity and can do a lot, markers and post board, um, as long as the students have done the reading. But if everyone's prepared, then, then I'd love to do a technology-free face-to-face. All right. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate sharing about yourself as we kind of get things going. Today, Sarah's going to talk with us about her work with youth in foster care and their transitions into higher education. So just one more time, Sarah, thank you so much for for sharing your work and your thinking with us. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, can you start, maybe just tell us a little bit about how you yourself came to be involved with this particular work and um, anything you want to share about your research on the topic? Sure. Um, and again, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'll share a little bit more about myself as we move into the research process. But um, as I said, I've been in West Georgia for about 10 years. And for six of those years, my wife and I uh, have been foster and adoptive parents. And we've had about 20 children come into our homes. And most of them have reunited with their families. And we've adopted four of those children. And so the research that I'm conducting now is really a confluence of my personal and professional lives. Um, and I, I feel like it's, it's taking on a lot of meaning for me uh, in both ways. But we got into fostering. Before that, my wife and I were both classroom teachers. I spent 10 years teaching fourth, fifth, and sixth grade in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and that that's where I learned about the K-12 system of education and how it worked. Really started to see um, the equity and inequity that existed within public education. And during that time, two students asked me to adopt them. Um, and, and, and though I love them very much, I was not in a position to do so. I was 21, 22 years old and grappling with my sexuality and could barely care for myself. Uh, I was also at the time really naive and assumed that the foster care system would protect them because systems had always worked for me in the past. Um, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case for the two students, um, Mark and Ashima, and who both really ended up enduring some incredible amounts of trauma as a result of their turn and as a result of their experience in foster care. And kind of their situation juxtaposed to mine that's been filled with privilege allowed me to look at the world really differently. And I wasn't able to help them at the time, but but I am a foster parent now because of them. And I'm conducting this research and working to be an aspiring ally and a, a new scholar studying the impact of foster care on the students just because of, of, of those personal experiences that I learned from, from Mark and Ashima. I'm currently conducting um, qualitative research. That's where my interest and abilities fall. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of two projects. I'm, first of all, disseminating that dissemination stage of my dissertation, um, which was about the experiences, the phenomenological inquiry into the experiences of students in foster care. So um, working on getting on that document into some smaller documents and, and finding the right place to get that published. Uh, and I'm also, uh, for about the last six months, conducting uh, another qualitative study looking at, at institutions in Georgia and the university system of Georgia 
uh, and what administrators think their best qualities are um, regarding students in foster care. So who are who are getting loans right now with homeless youth and, and youth with uh, food insecurity? So we know that this is this is a population that we're serving, and so what are our institutions doing? Um, and really then looking at where Georgia is in that process and then what we can do better. Um, so that's where, that's where I'm looking now to really have an understanding from the student's perspective of what's happening. And then from an administrator's perspective, where are we going? So we can then look at the gaps and see what needs to be filled in there. Based on your, your research, um, and I guess your own experience just engaging in, um, foster care, how have you seen youth making their way into higher education from foster care? And then in addition to some of the challenges that challenges they face, can you talk a little bit also about some of the assets that they bring into their college experience? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for thinking about their assets. I think a lot of times we and, and I started, too, looking at this population from a really deficit perspective. The current literature is uh, from social work. Most of it is from uh, social work and a quantitative lens. And ha- there's been a lot of conversations about what these students lack and, and their deficit. But one of the most promising things is that 70% of students in foster care aspire to attend, to attend college. And so those that end up making their way into college, and the, the ones that I've taught in through the other literature, have said that they have had um, what, what we are terming now as uh, educational savvy mentors. So people who are college educated and who have uh, who've really kind of let students know that this promise of education and, and here's what we can do with that. Here, here's what you need to do. And and when I think about the people that youth in foster care are most connected to their caseworkers, their counselors, guardian ad litem, the judges, people in both the foster care, the judicial, um, and, and the educational systems all have degrees. And so they're around a lot of very educated people, which may not be the case otherwise. They hadn't been in the foster care system. And so this desire to attend college has always been there. And now we're really looking at ways to get kids into college. And, and the best way, and most often, is from a mentor who's really who's really helped them. Um, so so about you know we know that the students are going to struggle, especially because they've been given uh, most have received a subpar K twelve education, and even if they got the best teachers, they were experiencing multiple transitions, um, maybe lack of financial resources personally and within their families, and of course that barrier of trauma uh, or neglect. And simply from just being separated from their parents, as well as the abuse that led to the separation, all of that creates a myriad of mental health problems that need to that need consistent attention. And that's what we focused on for a while. But what we're looking at right now, you know, the flip side of that trauma is is resilient. And this group of students, compared to any other group of students, is incredibly resilient. Um, and they're using that resilience as a form of capital to generate equity in higher education. And so they're entering college knowing that they are more mature than typical students. Um, and the ones that are succeeding are really taking advantage of their strengths. So this group of students is really independent, learn to trust themselves, 
at a young age. Um, and they know that in order to survive and, and, and to make progress, they have to be in a space um, to take care of themselves because maybe the same people won't be around tomorrow. Um, and, and, and while their independence um, kind of creates, creates a space for there to be a lack of interdependence, we know that our first-year college students are entering college um, a lot less homesick than um, than their peers, and they know how to navigate a system. So they've successfully navigated the K-12 system. They've likely spent some time navigating the foster care system. And so they have the skills and the wherewithal to really work through the maze of higher ed to, to cross the barriers in order to, to get the resources they need to be successful. Um, in, in compared to their peers, they're very adept at forming relationships with adults, especially those that can offer support. Um, and it's a group of students that, that for my research is less likely to use alcohol and drugs. And I, I think that that makes them ideal candidates for leadership positions on campus that would allow them to interact with their peers, um, something like university ambassadors and orientation leaders. Um, and I, I, I do, again, I think it's so important that we start looking at this population of students as kind of beings of strength that are, that have gone through this process independently, can do it alone, but now we can be here in college to help support that, that development because that's what we as student affairs professionals know how to do that. When you talk about, um, navigating systems, I know the foster care program uh, can vary a lot from one state to the next. Can you talk a little bit about what what it looks like in different parts of the country or or specific states? Um, sure. And maybe how different states help students um, get that access to higher education and make those connections. Sure, absolutely. Thanks. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so uh, uh, there are some national policies and laws. Um, so the Chafee Act, uh, which which provides the EPs, which are the education training vouchers. Um, every state has them, but then it's up to the state how they want to utilize those funds. And so some states have chosen to use those, form, those funds to build pipelines. And California has one of the best examples uh, that I've seen uh, about really preparing students in foster care to be successful in college. And what they've done is they've linked the foster care system with the higher ed system. And so students um, that are transitioning out of, of foster care as they're in most, most children can stay in the system until they're 21. Um, that, that too varies by state, but they also, most students leave high school with an independent living plan. And part of that plan in, in California is, is includes their post-secondary plan. And so guidance counselors, and um, caseworkers are working together to make sure that the students have the credits they need to enter uh, post-secondary education um, or that they have what they need to roll um, to finish high school to get that to earn their um, diploma. And so then from there, there's a plan for students to go into a two-year college to the state system or to the, the university system in California based on, based on their needs. Uh, and so what they're doing is they're taking, um, the, they're creating support, right? When we think about transitions and, and Schlossberg and they're taking a look at these students who already have a really strong sense of self 
and they're giving them the support and the resources they need to make those transitions. So California is the best, again, the best statewide um, program out there. There are some really good specific programs throughout the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there's a really good one in, um, I think, at Western Michigan as well. Um, but looking here in the South, like specific to to, Saxa, to the Saxa region, Georgia has one of the best um, one of the best programs, and and we're in the process of really building it. And so right now in Georgia, um, students that have been in foster care that are currently between the ages of 18 to 21 can can get up to twelve thousand five hundred dollars per year to go in addition to the loans that they're receiving or the Pell Grants that they that they're awarded um, to to finish the gap of uh, of college expenses. Um, Georgia is one of the best states there. We also have here, it is a less organized um, front, but but we also have points of contact on every campus in the USG so that if a student in foster care uh, knows that there's a point of contact, they can easily find out who that is on each campus. Um, this work is being done through Embark, which is an organization through the USG, and, and um, Marcy Stidham is doing some really good work at Kennesaw State. And that, what Georgia is doing, is kind of leading the Southwest. If you look at South Carolina, um, in comparison, while students in Georgia get $12,500, students in South Carolina can only get up to $250 a year, right? Well, that's a big difference between um, between what it would cost to go to a state school and the money that they're going to get. And so there, there's really this lack of equity out there. And some states are, are taking the dollars they have and, and pushing it towards the students. And some are building, um, building stronger settings within, within the Department of Social Services. Um, most students entering college from foster care are going to need help with housing. They're going to need um, help applying for grants and to um, all the logistics behind it. So they're academically ready, but then finding out how to how to meet their financial needs. I, I had no clue that the differences were that dramatic between, especially even bordering states. That's a huge difference. So isn't it? So I was really surprised too, and I never looked really at at everyone, and I started really researching it um, in the last, and I was kind of blown away at the difference between, um, between states. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the getting to and into and, and some of the financial aspects of it. Once students um, coming from foster care are in college, what have you learned or heard from them about what they choose to share or not share? Um, are there ways that they sort of can find each other? Because it's, it's sort of like maybe first-gen status or um, veteran or military affiliation status. It's not visible. So what what is that part of the experience when these students are coming into higher education and looking for connections and ways to belong, what sorts of things are they choosing to share and not share about um, their foster experiences? That's a really great question. And, and I would really put them in line with, uh, with the students, the veterans and first generation students in that um, it, there's really not a great way to capture this 
how many students are on campus, and we consider them a hidden population um, that can easily become or remain invisible on college campuses. Um, and so the easiest way to make a connection with students in foster care is, is to have a center for students in foster care, the same way that we would have that, a center for veterans or um, a center, uh, a Black Student Alliance or something like that. So space, uh, a learning a learning community, potentially, or a first-year experience course, maybe something in the residence hall, but to have a space where students from foster care can, can gather and kind of come come together. Um, colleges are, are right now really looking at ways that, that they can capture these numbers and really kind of get an idea of who's there on campus. Um, and so, so now we're starting to change uh, admissions applications. There's a question on federal financial aid that would ask if the students are in foster care. Um, just so that, that we're trying to, to really put some names to this group that, that's elusive. Um, and so the only way that outside of having, having a community specifically for this population, really the only way to, to know if someone has been in foster care without looking at their financial aid documents, um, would, would be for them to disclose that information to you. And, and we know that the best way to, have students disclose things is to form relationships with them. And so especially in in functional areas where where we're meeting students' basic needs, so um, in housing or conduct, for example, or, or in, in health services, knowing that there are things that, that we could do by just on a, on a quick questionnaire asking, have you ever been in foster care? Um, uh, and, and making making a space and putting professionals there that know how to ask the right questions and to look for the right things. And are there students that don't that stay in the residence hall every weekend? And are those students that are going to need a place when when the hall is closed? Um, so just looking for patterns of behavior and um, and and being open to understanding students' experiences. So you mentioned the idea of a center, which I love. Do you know, are there any institutions that have centers for youth out of foster care currently? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely there are. Um, so um, each campus in, in California has one. Um, so they're either the they're called Guardian Scholars or Renaissance Scholars. And those are typically, um, they have a coordinator, the coordinator level who's, who's in charge of programming and enrolling students. And those programs help in in a few fronts. So first, take, they'll they'll take care of paperwork and logistics behind um, tuition and, and making sure that the the EPVs are being used uh, well. And then, yeah. then they'll also start really looking at students from um, from a student development perspective and making sure that they have the counseling uh, that they need to kind of work through this process uh, as as well as the academic support. And so uh, the centers. The Guardian Scholars and the Renaissance Scholars uh, programs um, really do a, do a great job of wrapping services around students. And not only um, is there a coordinator who often has been in foster care themselves and been and has successfully navigated college, they they the students that participate have each other. And this is such a again because it's a small community of students having that group where there are. There are at least a handful of students that have had that similar experience and that are together uh, has ended up 
being for uh, many students that participate, uh, something that allows them to finish college. Um, because just from having a group that understands them, um, one of the first programs um, is is in uh, Michigan as well, and so they have a they have a great a great one at the at Michigan State about. Uh, uh, same thing with students in foster care and they're learning how to navigate um, college within that program. So most uh, most programs are in um, are in again the West or the Pacific Northwest. And what many campuses are doing now for students, not specifically for students in foster care, but again, if we start looking at students in foster care and those that are homeless and uh, experience food insecurity, um, you'll see. Campuses starting more social service type things. So maybe there's a food bank and there's a clothes closet and there are, um, maybe more, uh, access to emergency funds. We know that students are coming into college with, with less, uh, financial stability than before. So colleges are starting to, to get the resources necessary. Um, and we'll just take time before more campuses than not have, um, have programs and, and specifically for this group of students. If you could sort of give some information or knowledge to student affairs professionals um, in terms of supporting this population, what sorts of things would you want want them to know? Um, and maybe along that same line, if there are specific resources that you might recommend. Sure. Um, I think the first thing is, is that I'd like for uh, for professionals when working with this population or any population is to learn as much as you can about the policies and programs in your area and think about how that would specifically impact students in foster care. And and I think if, if, if we can start thinking about this population, then we're also going to cover the needs of a lot of other students. Um, so, for example, um, what housing and food options are available on, on campus after winter, spring, and summer. So if you're looking at those policies, um, do marketing materials only use words like mom and dad or parent? Um, how are we kind of promoting family experiences that are outside uh, of what we typically consider a family? Um, most students who have experienced foster care do not have a driver's license um, or a copy of their own birth certificate. So, is there a plan to, to help a student who has these logistical barriers? So really, right now, it's just thinking about what would I do with a student who comes to orientation without a parent? Or what would I do with a student who doesn't have identification because they don't have a parent that kept all that for them? Um, and and I, I think the easiest way to, to start learning is read about it. Um, my favorite thing to do to tell my students and, and to do myself is to start just with a Google search or a Google Scholar search about students in foster care and your functional area. There, we're, we're starting to see a lot more literature out there and learning if this is a group that you're really passionate about, um, we need to figure out how to, how to make macro level changes by looking at the, um, at the policies and laws that, that are there. I also think, um, and a great way to, to see the policies. For your state, there's a great website called childwelfare.gov, and they go through just each state the what the laws and policies are. Um, the Casey Family Program also does just is an outstanding organization that generates a lot of uh, reports 
and research about youth in foster care, um, particularly their educational experiences. I, I think the other thing that professionals can do is to collaborate and hire students from this population. So as soon as, as someone would disclose that they're in foster care, um, I, I think we need to make sure that we that we mentor and we take a look at this at this population and and that student um, and try and find ways that they can engage with their peers. So we know that youth in foster care, um, while they have great independence and uh, really a great ability to interact with adults, um, they do lack some some peer to peer relationships, mostly because their experiences made them be a little too mature and and so. So having opportunities for them to be in leadership positions where they're engaging with peers, they're likely need job experience um, and the money and the mentorship that comes along with it. And it's also going to be a way to keep them engaged in, in, in campus life. So I definitely think collaborating and, and hiring this population, uh, the, these students from this population would be great for departments that, that have those positions. Um, and I think finally, we have to start practice uh, to use our active listening skills, to practice active listening and giving unconditional positive regard for all students. But I think especially this student, for especially these students, a strength of this population um, is, is their ability to quickly and accurately assess a person's willingness to help. And if we genuinely want to help, then we really need to let students know that by modeling our behavior. So, Yes, I am here to help, and yes, I will help you um, move through that process. But to do that in a way of just listening and not asking questions and allowing the student to open up when they feel ready to do that, um, to give them time to, to trust and to know that their ability to trust you, um, while that judgment might have been made really quickly, uh, they're going to continue to, to need to see you consistently to build that rapport and to build that relationship with them. One thing I, I want to mention, you brought up engaging with students around conduct, and I just want to thank you for that. As a former conduct officer, I think that really is ideally, um, if if the student is open to it, that can be a helping conversation. Um, and it is one of those things where, you know, you have to build rapport quickly, and there right. there is a chance to ask, so what else is going on in your life in that setting? So I, I appreciate you mentioning that. I also I, 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 oh I'm sorry, go ahead. Well I just I, I just want to say I think our conduct officers are, are some of the, the the biggest kind of supporters of youth in foster care and the unsung heroes a lot on college campuses because they have that opportunity to take something that right could be perceived as negative and to really use that as a developmental experience and the more i watch um my students engage in the conduct process like in their practicums and i'm just so impressed with all that can be done from that and and that really that's how this population often is found is, is from you know something that should have been negative but ended up kind of turning turning around their their college career so thanks for that work i also want to um just pay some respect to the fact that when looking for information and resources, you also have some work coming out. I know you have presentations coming up at ACPA, NASPA, and um, the National Youth at Risk Conferences in the spring, and you have a book chapter coming out in Smith and Trans, Improving Education Through Multi-Level Community Relations and Stakeholder Engagement. 
you want to talk a little bit about your chapter and maybe what you're going to be talking about in your presentation? Sure. Uh, the the book chapter um, was really interesting and um, kind of was is one of the first pieces I took from my dissertation that um, I, I'm really interested in the ACA advocacy competencies that look at how we can become the best advocates in these micro, meso, and macro level spaces. Um, and, and this book, uh, the first the first part of it is K-12, so what K-12 schools are doing to work um, within communities. And then the second part is how um, how institutions of higher education are working within communities. And so I was able to uh, t- take the, the, the research I had and look at, well, what are some one-on-one things that we can do here to create collaborations, um, such as working with uh with the Department of Social Services and being uh really cognizant of the relationships that we build outside of the institution, especially at institutions uh like the University of West Georgia that are regional comprehensive. You know, our, our job and part of our mission is to make a connection with our with our communities. And so um I think creating these links and, and building building these networks and these pipelines from K twelve schools into higher ed. And so that's what that chapter really talks about is what can we do um, on one-on-one levels and then then more systemically by looking at policies and by creating spaces where we hear multiple perspectives so that we can create a better experience um, across the P16 spectrum. One of my presentations, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about systemic advocacy and, and this idea of um, of of creating teams of people from different backgrounds in order to help to help uh, students. I think right now I mean, we talk about silos a lot in higher education. Well, that's just in one system, and then we have a completely different K-12 system in all their silos, and then we have a judicial system and a uh, and a social service system, all with their own kind of separate spaces. And, and what I want to look at and, and really interested in is how can we take people that are all working towards this same goal to, to, to do the work, um, collaboratively and, um, share, share resources that way. And so I'll have a presentation there about, about those network, those connections. And I'm also taking a look at this idea of, um, foster care or foster kid. And I'm using air quotes there because um, I, you know, kind of hate that phrase, foster kid. I try and use people first language when possible. Um, but looking at that as an identity. So similar to first generation or veteran status. Um, and then how that identity intersects, um, with other salient identities like race and sexuality. Um, and, and what being in foster care, how, how that impacted their perspective of their other salient identities. And I'll be talking about that at NASPA. Um, and then finally, my research um, with institutions in, in Georgia, so taking a look at what we're doing here in Georgia and these initial steps to build the foundation for a really strong pipeline. Uh, and so I'll be sharing the research uh, that I that I collected about, yeah, within the last six months there. Um, I'm also, I'll use this as an opportunity to say I'm looking to collaborate, so anybody uh, that's interested in researching this this topic or this area. Um, I have a lot of ideas and uh, would would love to to talk about it and see see what everyone's doing and, and find a way to work together. Well, and if it's okay with you, kind of with that as the lead in, 
I'll go ahead and share your email address because yeah. people may have more questions or, you know, great ideas or tons of grant money that they want to share with you, any of which I'm sure I'd love that. Um, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but the email address is sejones at westga.edu. That's correct. And you're also on Twitter at S. Elizabeth Jones, correct? That's correct. Yes. All right. Um, Sarah, I just, I want to thank you. I guess I'll give you one more sort of, it's not even really a prompt, but opportunity. Are there any closing thoughts? Is there anything that um, you haven't had a chance to speak on that you'd like to share? Um, I, I, one thing I'd like to share is, is, is that I think, I truly believe that this population of students deserves our best. Um, sometimes even around other foster parents, we think about giving to someone else and we want to give them something that's less than what we have. And um, from a population that has so much hope and optimism for the promise of education, um, these are the students that we want in our institutions. They want to be successful. They just need our help in, in knowing how. And so I think we're in a unique position as student affairs professionals to do our best to find these students, to find this invisible population, and 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 go in there and treat them with uh, with a respect and love and, and idealism that we probably came into this profession with. Um, and I, I, I would love it so that every uh, kid on campus would feel comfortable telling at least one person about their experiences, and and that we would know then what to do with that. I just I want to thank you again for being um, a guest today and for sharing about this topic. I hope that people will take a chance uh, or take some time and look at your work, hopefully catch you at a conference this spring. This is, you know, an emerging topic, and you're um, definitely on the front end of making this population more visible to us as a profession, as well as that on your specific institution and in your state so I, I can't thank you enough and I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing so thank you again um, thank you um, yeah this has given me just a great opportunity to think about what I've done and uh, maybe the break I needed to look at this holistically so I, I appreciate the time well and I hope you're inundated with um, outreach after this and me too um, again I, I just appreciate you making this a much more visible issue and uh, sharing your knowledge and your scholarship as well as some other resources. Thank as we wrap up, I was wondering if we'll shift gears just a little bit, um, but, you know, with sort of an undertone of hope and um, aspiration and looking forward and positivity, can you share, uh, say, three things, two or three things that you have in your office at work that bring you joy? Oh, absolutely. Um, I love my office at work. Um, and one of the first things, uh, what I have a, I have a pennant that says, you know, like the little baseball pennant says, but this one says, y'all means all. And my sister gave it to me as a graduation gift and she's such a good gift giver, but I think it's perfect. Uh, let everyone know that I'm Southern and, uh, and, and really work to be inclusive. Uh, I love that y'all is gender neutral. Um, it's just one of my favorite, favorite words. Um, I also have uh, like a bulletin board, a little magnet bulletin board. I call it my validation board, and 
I've had a few students that have just written great thank you notes or um, had a few kind words to say, and I keep the nicest and the kindest ones up there. And anytime I need some external validation, uh, I, I pick one up and read it and kind of immediately enter a better place and remember again why um, why this work is really important to me. Um, and I have a, a semi-homemade uh, accordion-style graduation card that my wife made for me. It's right on my windowsill. Um, and on one side, it says congratulations. And then on the on the other, uh, there are these kind of glued wallet-sized photos of me and all the kids we had when, when I was in my dissertation, kind of showing this path of from beginning scholar all the way to, to graduation and all the kids we had along the way. So um, that I, it, it's really special. I keep it right at my desk so I can see again um, to remind me of the reasons that that I'm fortunate to do the work I have. I love this job and um, want to remember to not take that for granted. That's great. I, I love the, the sort of gratitude and celebration and motivation, inspiration all bundled up together. So excellent. Well, thank you again, Sarah, and thank you to everyone listening and tuning in to Essay Today. Essay Today comes to you from the Southern Association for College Student Affairs. We are grateful for their encouragement and support, and I hope you all take care and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much, Michelle. Have a great day.